0: You are back with me, Harry Stebbings at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram, and my word, what an episode we have in store for you today. An individual who's seen the scaling from startup to multi-billion dollar public company. With that, I'm thrilled to welcome Amanda Clear. Amanda is the Chief Customer Officer at Figma, the startup that allows you to turn ideas into products faster through design, prototyping, and gathering feedback all in one place. To date, Figma have raised over $42 million in VC funding from some of the very best in the business, including Index Venture. Kleiner Perkins, Greylock Partners, and former 20 VC guests, Daniel Gross and Adam Nash. And prior to Figma, Amanda held numerous roles at Zendesk, including SVP of Marketing and Sales Strategy. And Amanda joined Zendesk as the first marketing hire, and over the next seven years, Zendesk grew to check this out, over 2,000 employees. And before Zendesk, Amanda worked on the marketing team for Google's enterprise SaaS business. And if that wasn't enough, Amanda is also today an advisor at Airtable and Smartling. I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Anne Raimondi for the. fantastic intro to Amanda today. I really do so appreciate that, Anne. However, before we dive into the show with Amanda today, you might remember last month we had Krish, CEO and co-founder of Chargebee, join us as a guest on the show. Well, amongst other things, we chatted about pricing, bootstrapping, and the right time to raise capital. Well, Krish's product, Chargebee, helps SaaS and subscription businesses scale globally by automating subscriptions, billing, invoicing, and accounting. Using Chargebee, you can analyze key business metrics that impact growth such as MRR, LTV, quick ratio, and net negative churn? Simply head over to chargebee.com to sign up for a free trial. And speaking of great entrepreneurs like Krish there, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. And this time we'll hear from Jack Cravey, VP of Operations at AmeriCommerce. AmeriCommerce is an e-commerce platform for high volume online stores and complex products. With it, you can run one store or multiple stores with shared or separate inventory, manage wholesale and retail, and customize for specific customers or scenarios, and much more. Hey Harry, uh it took
1: us several years to get to where we are today but it all started with customers telling us what they were looking for and us doing everything in our power to fit those needs it wasn't perfect on the first time around but with enough feedback and enough communication we were able to satisfy what they were looking for and and that's played a big factor in our success
0: thanks so much for that jack and staying true to what your customer need is one way to achieve success for sure and to learn how you can successfully grow your revenue with integrated payments check out WePay's latest case study at wepay.com Forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. Oh, yes, I have my own URL there. Bonus, you can also meet the WePay team at SAS to annual. And finally, there's no argument from me on this. SAS companies that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SAS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, and customer success they grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news. Zocri allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zokri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zokri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com, to sign up now. But that's enough of my British voice drearing on. And so now I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Amanda Clear at Figma. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Amanda, a huge welcome to the show. Heard many great things from Dylan and Anne. So huge thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Harry. It's great to be here and have a chance to chat with you. Absolutely. But I want to kick off today with a little bit about you. So tell me, Amanda, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS exactly 10 years ago from my stalking of the LinkedIn profile and come to be the chief customer officer at Figma? What's that story?
1: Yeah, you know, I got started in SaaS really by accident. I was working in the back office of tech doing... IT development work. And I realized I wanted to get closer to the customer. I ended up pursuing an MBA at Yale. And as that was wrapping up, an alumni talked me into joining a security SaaS company called Postini. So after grad school, I took a job in marketing at Postini because it fit the goal of getting closer to the customer. And right as I started, Google acquired the company. So I ended up working at Google for a few years. And then I got introduced to Mickle, the CEO of Zendesk. And joining Zendesk really changed the trajectory everything for me. I didn't know how much my career was going to change at the time, but Zendesk had a great product market fit and I was on a growth path there that was just unstoppable. And for the first time in my life I actually jumped out of bed on Monday mornings. So I was just in love with learning how we would evolve every 6 months. And I think that combination of me loving my job and being in a successful place took me to a lot of new places. I wasn't really concerned with what my title was or what my job was even. I was just really excited to be there every day. And I think that attitude helped me be successful as well as just outlast the change of every phase. And so by the time I left Zendesk seven and a half years later, I had the marketing experience I needed to go run marketing. But I also knew I could do more because I'd started a cross-functional business unit there that was focused on online sales. I'd also run sales strategy for the company right before I left. And in addition, for support, because we sold to that buyer and department, I had learned a lot about support. So I really felt like I was a potential candidate for a COO-type role at the right place. And now here I am at Figma in
0: charge of all of go-to-market, which is super exciting for me. I mean, such an exciting company. And I- I'm also very excited to have Dylan coming on the show also. But I do have to ask, you mentioned the incredible journey there with Zendesk. I believe you joined when there were 12 people and seven years later when you left, there were 2,000. So really seeing the hyperscaling of the company in numerous different roles, can I ask a really unfair question? What were the one or two really big takeaways for you from that experience that maybe you've taken with you to Figma today.
1: Yeah, I find that I came to really appreciate great service and preferring to do what's right for the customer. I think it's really easy to forget that customer perspective, but Zendesk taught me to make it second nature. Just last week one of my colleagues was presenting to me three options for solving a problem and without skipping a beat I asked, "Well, which option's best from the customer perspective?" It was really obvious to pick out the choice with that criteria and it wasn't the easiest one to implement. But when you tie the discussion to the customer, it makes it really hard to justify taking the easy way out. I like to nerd out on end-to-end customer experience. You know, like how long does it take a user to get to a goal? The experience you design, if you will, matters quite a bit. And I think if companies mapped out their processes from the customer perspective on a regular basis, they'd learn a lot.
0: Can I jump in and ask how important is that time to? value element when kind of crafting the customer experience?
1: I think it's important. I don't think it has to necessarily be short all the time, but I think you have to be deliberate and intentional with every step. So really analyzing every step along the way is important to do not just once, but on a regular basis.
0: No, absolutely. And I do want to start today. I titled this element being growth, 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 and especially growth when it comes to the people, as we said, from 12 to 2,000. So on the people and kind of all, Almost running it as a funnel. To clarify the objective before we dive into the process of kind of that incredible growing the team, we're in an early stage startup in our metaphorical process here, okay, Amanda? And we're hiring people for stage. Or do you think maybe people can fundamentally move and transition with the different stages of the company? Is there that plasticity?
1: Well, the short answer is I do think top performers can fundamentally scale with the business. And ideally, you want to hire top performers. But maybe that's hard to do when you don't have the brand recognition or much traction yet. My longer answer is I think about it from two angles. So you've got the candidate mindset and then you have the company needs. When you're a startup you're naturally going to attract a certain kind of person that's okay with risk. They're going to expect change and they can deal at least somewhat with ambiguity. So I think early on it's easy to hire for that mindset. But the second part is can you find the people with the skills you need not just for today but the skills you're going to need in two to three Years, For example, and the skills you need today, I think are still relevant to what you need in two to three years. It's just the differences in the future. You're going to need something else as well. So if that person doesn't end up having that, then you're going to need to add someone who does, and you need to add people along the way anyway. So that's fine. Well, I think where it gets funky is if people have expectations that you're going to hire that you weren't, you know, going to hire above them, or maybe they aren't willing to give up part of their job to someone else. and then they're dissatisfied. So that's where strong self-awareness, maybe low ego or just a love for the company above all else, I think plays a role in the longevity of the employee and
0: why I think the candidate mindset is just as important as the business needs. I love the word longevity there. I I mean, in terms of kind of determining the abilities of each candidate, can I ask, how does one determine between those that maybe can and those that cannot scale with the company? I guess both in the pre-hire process, when you really have quite a limited time with the candidates and determining their skills there. And then also maybe when they're in the role and determining whether they have that plasticity, are there leading indicators that suggest they can scale?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's hard to foreshadow if someone can scale, but I do think it starts with the candidate's motivations. I like to see indications that the person's looking to make a home somewhere for a while, and then are they bought into the product or the mission? Or are they just attracted to working with someone they know, for example? It's hard to make people fall in love with your company and product, but if you've got that baseline passion there already, I think the person has a higher chance of wanting to evolve with the changes. I also like to look for creativity in people. For example, a candidate might ask or answer a question about solving a particular problem. And then once they answer how they would solve, I, I also like to ask them, How would you solve it in a different way now? And if people can come up with more than one solution, they're, I think, a little more
0: likely to scale. You mentioned there uh, the elements of expanding that uh, thought process for the candidate in that interview question. I'm a, a super nerd when it comes to interview questions and structures of them. Do you have a single question that you maybe find most revealing of a, a candidate's kind of mindset and potential?
1: Well, I like at the end, I always ask if people have questions for me. And I think the questions people have for me are super revealing. I learn a lot about how much homework they did. If I haven't figured that out already, I learn how passionate they are for the business. People who are passionate for the business will do and say very unnatural things that stand out in a unique way. And surprisingly, people who are trying to fake that passion, they don't get very creative in the interview process. In addition, I think the questions people ask me tend to tell me a direct path of what's important to them. So for example, a common question people might ask is, tell me about the culture here. I just find this so boring and unimaginative. This is a question you can get an answer to if you do some searching on the internet. So don't ask me things that you can find the answer to on the internet. A better question, maybe in the same vein would be, Amanda, if I had an idea to make the business better, does the culture support hearing my idea? To me, that's a little more interesting. I learned that you're already wanting to make the business better. You might have some creative ideas. You're not shy to bring them up, so you might have some leadership capabilities. You want to be heard. You want to be
0: part of a community that's healthy and join a place for the right reasons. I totally agree with you there. And I, I completely also agree with the granularity in going that one level deeper. I, I do have to ask, we, we mentioned the element of the questions that one asks in an interview there. Is there a right way to run an interview process and kind of have that hiring plan mapped out, so to speak. As I said, you've hired so many. Is there an optimal process to run?
1: Well, the best processes are when the hiring manager is highly engaged. So they take the time to be clear with themselves or with recruiting on what they want. They're thoughtful about who's on the interview panel and they brief the panel on what the role is and what a good candidate looks like. They're also decisive about when to cut bait with someone or keep going. And they're just generally organized. I think, Mistakes are made when the hiring manager isn't organized. Personally, I like to make interviews a little difficult for candidates. I do this in a pretty simple way, which is I don't give feedback on whether I liked an
0: answer or not.
1: And people automatically think an interview is difficult if they can't tell whether
0: the interviewer likes them. Does that not struggle in terms of the rapport building, so to speak? Often, one might become more confident if they see a smile and a a laugh, and do you know what I mean? Some form of approval.
1: Sure. I don't do this with everyone. And my assumption is that in this case, I have a panel of people, so they're getting that rapport other ways. But here's the thing. I want people to think that we have a high bar of quality for the people who work at my company. And if they think it's easy to get a job here, then I worry they're going to lose a little bit of respect for the brand. And I suppose I have this viewpoint because I have been that person who had a really hard, easy time getting a job offer. And I did lose a little bit of respect because then my assumption is, oh my gosh, do they not have any other good candidates? I'm the only one. So I don't do this with everyone. I mean, if I'm in sell mode, then I'm going to be in sell mode. But it is funny for me to hear what people think of interviews with me because it's not that I do anything super hard. It's just I don't give people feedback all the time
0: they want. No, I do totally get you. And I I like the element of kind of that maintaining a bar of quality and a stamp mark of kind of respect. Oh, I
1: was just going to say another lesson I learned over the years is to do reference checks and wherever possible a background or back channel reference. I learned this lesson early on when I could have saved myself a lot of heartburn had I done it. I find reference checks are really helpful in identifying if you have a top 10% kind of candidate. It's just very obvious in a reference check that an employee was amazing because they'll use a lot of emotional superlatives that go above and beyond a positive referral. It's just hard to fake that.
0: Mm -hmm. No, again, I couldn't agree more on the centrality of reference checks. Before we move on to kind of a more granular aspect being the the communication within the people that we hire, I do have one final question. It was, I spoke to Anne before the episode, and she said that you're incredible in terms of strategizing around the hire and kind of thinking in terms of very high growth environments. And is it just a case of adding bodies? And how do you think about, and this was her question, how do you think about the right people at the right time?
1: Well, I I definitely never think about just adding bodies because that Feels a little sloppy, right? As we all do, I made a couple mistakes early on. And as a result, those experiences really taught me how to evolve my hiring processes. But I do have to say at Zendesk, while it was high growth, we didn't have the employee growth that some other high growth companies do. You know, once we got to maybe 50 employees, we didn't more than double the number of employees each year. And sometimes when I hear about companies that 3X or 4X their employee count in 12 months' time, I just have to imagine that has to be messy and hard to keep the culture in check. I think early on, it can be hard to find quality candidates. So depending on the role, I might consider hiring a contractor in the meantime or hiring someone for a short-term start to try them out. I'm not sure I would have had the insight to do that 10 years ago, but with the Zendesk experience under my belt, I feel a lot more confident in knowing when to hire people. Occasionally, I remember Mikkel having us hire people what felt like before we needed them. But now in hindsight, I just think his experience allowed for him to already know and be one step ahead of where we were. So today, when I think about where I want Figma to be in 12 months' time, it's somewhat easy for me to identify what the gaps are to get us there people-wise. So I think when you allow yourself time with that high-level perspective,
0: it's more easy to figure out those gaps. I'm so pleased that you said there about when you see 3 or 4x growth in employee head Account, you think, wow, that must be a, an interesting situation in terms of culture. Because I do want to touch on the element of communication throughout the team. And my partner, Fred Destin, always says that effective decision-making is key to scaling teams. Can I ask, how does the decision-making structure change with the scaling of the org, in your experience?
1: Yeah, well, I think in the early days, it's common to make decisions as a group. And for the most part, the CEO would have the final call. But as the number of cooks increase, you obviously have to evolve that decision-making. And I think leaders just need to be clear on what decisions employees should feel empowered to make on their own, and then actually go let them make those decisions. People that are effective early and later on, I think are good at knowing when to just run with things or when they need to get buy-in. And I always felt like that was one of my greatest assets after being at Zendesk for a few years, just knowing what the CEO would care about or want to preview. I spent my first year reporting to him and getting to know what he cared about. About So in hindsight, I think that experience gave me an advantage over other new leaders that didn't report to him or just didn't get that one on one time with him. I like that my team can feel like they can make decisions on their own. But in order to do that, I need to educate them on what's important to me. So I need them to be able to channel me into their decisions. So if they know how I would react, then they're going to feel more comfortable making a decision on their own. So I spend a lot of time telling people, How I came to certain conclusions, maybe what my pet peeves are, or perhaps tell stories that illustrate my philosophies on certain topics. I know I've done my job when I hear people say, Amanda, I knew
0: you would agree with me, so I went ahead with this. Yeah, no, absolutely. that Internal Amanda within everyone. I, I totally get you. It's that what would Amanda do style. Can I ask, where does decision making tend to break down? You've worked from the behemoths of Google to the incredible scaling of Zendesk to now that the scaling journey and Figma, where does decision-making tend to break down?
1: Well, I think that decision-making breaks down when it's not clear what the goals are. So a company can do themselves a favor by setting goals and priorities because oftentimes there's just no shortage of ideas. So the hard decisions are around what not to do. If you do goal-setting right, it's just gonna make it a little bit easier, at least for people to make decisions on how they spend their time each day. I'm interested in enabling everyone on my team to work on high-impact initiatives. And if they aren't spending time on high-impact projects, then it's time we review what's preventing that
0: and stop doing things that aren't making a difference. I totally agree with you in terms of that high-impact. I am also super interested in terms of the communication there, because we said about your element of education within the team and knowing exactly what and how to empower them in the right way. In terms of kind of communication across function, how can one foster maybe true cross-functional collaboration? in a company, so to speak. Let's start on that. Yeah,
1: you know, at Zendesk, I feel like I achieved cross-functional nirvana at a certain point in time. So (laughs) this is what happened. I was asked to create a cross-functional team that focused on our online sales. And I seeded the team with a group of 12 people. It ended up growing to about 60. It had a few engineers in it, a product manager, marketers, data analysts, a couple operational experts. So it was very cross-functional. And at first I wondered, you know, what would people think of this team? Because it was very unique within the company. This was right after we went public that I did this. And I was wondering, you know, what were these engineers thinking? Because all the other engineers were in the core engineering department. So it was very unusual, but I decided that I was going to provide these engineers exposure to the business in a way that no one else in engineering would get. It was almost going to be like a getting a mini MBA at work. So the first thing, thing I wanted to do was get everyone speaking the same language. That was very important to me. So we spent an afternoon together whiteboarding and brainstorming about the end-to-end customer journey. So when someone first comes in contact with our brand, all the way to certain milestones like signing up for a trial or making a purchase, and then maybe finally potentially leaving us as a customer. And we talked through all the things we thought worked well and what we could improve. And everyone brought a very unique insight to the process. So during that session and the weeks after, we all learned things like what's MRR and why is it important? What are the basics of agile development? So it was a lot of learning happening on all sides. We also set really clear goals for what we wanted to do and the tone of our team culture, which was going to be around experimentation and iteration. So we wanted to learn together, but we wanted to learn fast. And once we had all that, we started to really gel on what were the most impactful things that we could work on together. And while people had roles, everyone had been read into the big picture. So it was really encouraged to think beyond your scope of work and come up with ideas for the bigger goal. It was just a really amazing group of people that all brought a piece of the puzzle to the table. And it was really my job to help guide them to a common table. I think when you frame the conversation in the customer's viewpoint, it's easier for people to contribute ideas. For example, people aren't intimidated to solve funnel issues when you couch them as, hey, what do we want the customer to do next? So just a little taste of how I approached
0: cross-functional collaboration. I love that. And uh, what sounds like an incredible environment to have been in. I am super interested. I'm a nerd when it comes to experimental cultures because the big question for me is how do you foster a culture of risk-taking and ambition with regards to the function that you're operating on, but also ensuring that there's not a willingness to accept failure too easily how does one navigate that difficult balance of risk-taking but then also where we sit on how we have a relationship with failure
1: i think it's the tone you set for the team it's okay that not everything works so if you set out that hey we're going to do a lot of things and we expect some of them to not work so it's okay when some of them don't you just have to set that initial tone and then people don't feel intimidated to fail because that's part
0: of your culture you have to be willing to say that out loud multiple times, though. No, I agree. And I agree, especially with the repetition there. I think that's key. I did also love the way you said about kind of the mini MBA there and the what is MRR. And before we move into the quick fire round, I do want to touch on the mechanics of SaaS. You have incredible experience with self-service and sales models working beautifully together. Starting from the beginning, when strategizing, how does one determine what to start with? I often have, should I just do low-hanging fruit self-service, Harry? Should I do the high enterprise sales? model. So what are your thoughts here?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's very challenging to do both models well together. There's not many companies that are able to pull that off. They each take very different skills and mentalities and the two of them are always at odds with each other. But I think if you ultimately know you want to do both, to get to both, I think you need to start with self-service and then add sales later. And the reason why is with self-service, you have to be more precise with your customer experience experience. So for example, you can't experiment as easily with say pricing and packaging. So you've got to nail that. You also have to think through all the clicks that you're going to make someone go through to get to a purchase and how you might simplify that to maximize your conversion rate. And then you have a main message on your homepage. And if that doesn't resonate, you've only got that one chance or people are going to bounce off. Your product onboarding has to be intuitive. All these things can be a lot looser when you have a sales-driven model, you can almost be sloppy about it because you can rely on humans to talk the customer through any hiccups. So if you start with sales and then you want to pull off self-service after, more often than not, you're going to have to hire a whole cross-functional team that has self-service DNA because you likely don't have it in your company, particularly in your product and marketing teams. And it's really dangerous to assume that people all of a sudden can start thinking about your business in that more precise way that's required for self-service.
0: Can I ask, we mentioned kind of differing go-to-markets there. Does go-to-market requirements change with the stage of SaaS development from maybe early days to post-IPO? How do you think about kind of building that right go-to-market at the different stages?
1: Yeah, well, at Zendesk, we pushed off hiring sales for quite a while. Our self-service model was pretty strong and healthy before we layered in sales. We must have had about 10 or 15 thousand paying customers before we invested too much in hiring a sales team. And then when we did decide we were going to hire sales, we started with just a few reps to learn things before we had a plan to hire in volume. We wanted to prove to ourselves that sales would add value to the model. So we're hoping they would increase our average deal size or maybe shift our plan mix over to higher price plans or that we might be able to win some deals that were going to require, say, a security review. And once we had the data to see what was working, then things progress from there. And after I started the online business unit, that was right after the IPO. We did that because we were concerned that big customers were dominating too much thinking within the company. And we wanted a team that could give attention to our online business needs and felt that the only way to do that was to create a group of people that were focused on it. But overall, I'd say before IPO, after IPO, through the different stages, your strategy is going to just start to feel more and more complicated and you need someone who helps ask the questions that force you to think through how to keep things at
0: least somewhat simple as you face more and more complexity. Speaking of kind of complications there and related back to your Zendesk days, I know you led the efforts, uh, as I said, a little birdie helped me with these interview questions. I know you led the efforts at Zendesk around the element of pricing, which is often a big bone of contention or unknown for early stage founders. Can I ask, how did Zendesk evolve pricing and packaging as it grew and were there any big learnings for you from seeing that experience? Absolutely. I learned a ton about pricing. Most of the decisions in the
1: early days, for better or for worse, were by gut instinct. In 2010, we made a pricing decision that helped inform a lot of subsequent pricing decisions for a while. And what we learned was that customers don't like pricing changes forced on them, but they are willing to entertain new prices if you give them a choice. So for many years, we decided that the price you bought into was the price that stayed with you until you you upgraded your plan or added more products. And as a result, we changed our product strategy to consider things like add-ons rather than force customers into a new price for more functionality on their existing plan. At some point, we ended up hiring Simon Kutcher, a consultancy, to help consult on a proper pricing research project. And they told or taught me a lot of things about pricing, in particular, leaders, billers, and
0: killers. Do you know what those are? I don't know. Leaders, billers, Killers. Tell me.
1: Yeah. So, leader features are the main reason you would buy a package. So, if you're going to go buy a Happy Meal at Burger King, you're going to buy it for the burger. The burger is the leader feature. Mm -hmm. And fillers are the nice additional things that you want as well. So, the fries and the drink. Mm -hmm. And then, killers are the features that actually devalue your bundle. Most people don't want killers. And so, they feel like they're paying for something that they won't use and therefore shouldn't have to pay for. So if you had added, say, a cup of coffee to a value meal, that would be a killer because most people don't want a coffee as well. Some people might, but most people don't. And we really tried to teach the whole company about these learnings because we thought it was a
0: valuable framework for everyone from product to sales to understand. No, I just wanted to say I've never had such a brilliantly uh, concise description of this, such three different personas of pricing and it's 210 episodes in. So uh, a huge, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) But sorry, I interrupted your flow there. Yeah, no, glad I taught you something new after 200 episodes.
1: Well, pulling off pricing changes as we got bigger and bigger became a much bigger deal. So the last pricing project at Zendes had a human humongous amount of employees involved to make it successful and i learned a lot about how it was just important to be very clear with the goals of the project what we expected what we wanted to measure and also just how to get buy-in to prioritize the project within the company so all that organizational change stuff that we didn't have to think about in the early days another thing that we did that i learned was we ended up writing a philosophy on pricing internally so it talked about what things were Sacred and why. And it really helped our pricing strategy meetings to keep in perspective of what things were important. I also kept a log on changes we made each year and why, which became an important part of onboarding certain new employees to have that historical background
0: and philosophy. Absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like pricing is an episode in itself to be quite frank, Amanda, but I absolutely love that. And I'm, I'm, I'm always going to remember that uh, leader, filler and killer for sure. Yeah. I want to move into my favorite element though of any episode. So being the quick fire round. So essentially, I say a short statement and then you give me an immediate answer in about 60 seconds. How does that sound? That Sounds good. Okay, so what do most SaaS companies get wrong with product marketing?
1: Oh, I think they make it overly complex. I remember when we were prepping to localize the website into a dozen different languages and what became immediately obvious was that our messaging was way too advanced and nuanced for certain markets. And it was a good reminder that at times our website didn't easily achieve the simple task of just telling people what we sold and who it was for. I think it's tempting to get fancy, but companies with good product marketing keep things simple.
0: Yeah, I have to say, localization must be a brilliant litmus test for kind of simplicity of message. Absolutely. Is there such a thing as no man's land in SaaS pricing, Amanda? Oh,
1: it all depends. Your pricing is a reflection of your go-to-market strategy. I think people will certainly buy things in no man's land price points. So the question is, can you come up with a go to market strategy that will support those price points. From a sales perspective, if you have to do outbound prospecting and hire infield reps to win deals, then that doesn't bode well for no man's land. But there are in between sales models that what I would call light sales, where you have a model that makes use of tactics like group demos or holding firm on no custom contracts to keep costs down. So your sales and marketing strategies are going to dictate whether there's a no man's land or not. But bottom line, buyers, Need to come to your site and easily self identify with the product that's right for them. So if they can't do that, you lose. So if you have a package that doesn't speak to anyone, you're in no man's land, no matter what the price is.
0: How to ensure customer support is a strategic team, not just a reactionary one.
1: Customer support holds the keys to the voice of your customer. So give them a voice in the company to share that perspective. They have valuable insights to your roadmap, they have valuable insights to what's missing in marketing. And I think helping foster those cross-functional conversations with maybe even company goals that
0: support them. This is so unfair of me to add an additional one, but I'm too intrigued. Should customer success be involved in the upsell process?
1: I think they- can absolutely you have to have the right culture to pull that off but i remember spotify doing something like that that was interesting i don't know if you've had spotify on before but i like it as an idea i don't think it maybe
0: works everywhere sure no absolutely i think there's there's always nuance but as an idea it's a great one what would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today amanda
1: Well, I don't know. I wish there was maybe a little less VC money available. It doesn't always breed the best products. (laughs) No, seriously, if you'll forgive me for a small plug on Figma, I'd love to help change the design process. I think SaaS is changing our expectations when it comes to software and I'd love to see the design process evolve to an open design model where it's easy to collaborate across teams. And when I think about product teams embracing open design, I think
0: we'll see even more innovation in SaaS. And then final one, and this this is probably the hardest of them all, but I'm giving you optionality around the start point. So what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now this can be the beginning of your time with Postini, it can be the beginning of your time with Google, with Zendesk or, or with Figma. What do you know now though that you wish you'd known at the beginning of dot dot dot?
1: Well, at the beginning of Zendesk, I don't think there's something I would say I wish I knew. I mean I didn't know how to evaluate the company when I interviewed there. I just went on a gut feeling I had with the CEO and I talked to him mentor of mine. But when I joined, I used that to my advantage that I didn't know everything. I did well being the underdog and I grew with the business because I didn't fight other people's experience, but rather I built off of it. So I used not knowing everything to my advantage. And at Figma, there's an expectation that I have answers and that's my advantage this time around. It comes with more pressure and higher expectations on both sides. So I'm not sure there's something I wish I knew. I think not knowing things actually helped me along the way.
0: No, Absolutely. I would have always said if I'd known how hard it was to do podcasting, I would never have stopped. So it, was That's right. good that. <laughs> so it was rather good. But listen, Amanda, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I heard so many wonderful things from Anne and this has just been wonderful. So thank you so much for joining me today. So great to talk to you, Harry. Thanks so much. So fantastic to have Amanda on the show there, and such exciting times ahead with Figma. And if you'd like to see more from Amanda, you can find her on Twitter, at A-Clear. Likewise, it'd be great to see you behind the scenes here at SASTA on Instagram, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. That really would be fantastic. But before we leave you today, you might remember last month we had Krish, CEO and co-founder of Chargebee, join us as a guest on the show. Well, amongst other things, we chatted about pricing, bootstrapping, and the right time to raise capital. Well, Krish's product, Chargebee, helps SAS and subscription businesses scale globally by automating subscriptions, billing, invoicing, and accounting. Using Chargebee, you can analyze key business metrics that impact growth such as MRR, LTV, quick ratio, and net negative churn. Simply head over to chargebee.com to sign up for a free trial. And speaking of great entrepreneurs like Krish, there, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. And this time we'll hear from Jack Cravey, VP of Operations at AmeriCommerce. AmeriCommerce is an e-commerce platform for high-volume online stores and complex products with it you can run one store or multiple stores with shared or separate inventory manage wholesale and retail and customize for specific customers or scenarios and much more hey harry Uh, it took us several years to get to where we are today but it all started with
1: customers telling us what they were looking for and us doing everything in our power to fit those needs it wasn't perfect on the first time around but with enough feedback and enough communication we were able to satisfy what they were looking for and, and that's played a big factor success.
0: Thanks so much for that, Jack. And staying true to what your customer need is one way to achieve success for sure. And to learn how you can successfully grow your revenue with integrated payments, check out WePay's latest case study at wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. Oh yes, I have my own URL there. Bonus, you can also meet the WePay team at SAS to annual. And finally, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SAS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing and customer success. They grow fast and let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news. Zocri allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zocri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com, to sign up now. As always, I can I cannot thank you enough for tuning in, and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.